Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. We hope that this message inspires you and helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. Man, it, it simplifies our message and our purpose and why we're here so much. Is what Natalia said, she'd been loved so much as she just wants to be able to love the world in the same way. And uh, okay, that's the service done. Thanks for coming. You've heard everything there is to know about Christianity. That's it. But now that I've got you, uh, I want to talk to you about my political views for a moment. I just joke, I just joke. Um, but I'm excited. If you are um, visiting here today, or, or maybe this is your first time to church ever, or maybe your first time in a, in a while, the series we're currently doing in moments kind of talking about um, what difference does faith in Jesus make? And this is the question we've been asking the past few weeks is what difference, what difference does it make now? We've been, since Easter, we've been looking at um, the, the birth of the local, the birth of the church and how the first followers of Jesus were radically impacted um, by the message of Jesus, by the resurrection of Jesus. And so we looked at what happened then and how much the kind of the overwhelming practical implications of the resurrection of Jesus were seen in Jesus' followers being radically generous. There's no other way of kind of of, of illustrating what it was like. They were radically generous. It turned the world on its head. The simple command to love others as you've been loved, um, the practical implications of that, of that were massive. And so as we've looked at what happened then, we've now been asking the question, what difference does it make now? What difference does it make now? And so we began asking this question uh, uh, last week, and I want to continue on it today. And as Chloe highlighted before, our uh, Vision Sunday is coming up in two weeks' time on the 9th of June. That's why you saw the big now sign there if you're wondering what that was. Where we're looking at the difference we can make now as a church and what we can financially invest into now and the difference in the world that we can make uh, now. So, man, it's so cool to see uh, what your, your investment and your influence in, uh, you know, a, a, maybe a region of Thailand you'll never visit, but you've already made an impact there in people's lives today. There are people whose lives are helped right now because of uh, your, your generosity. I mean, last night, as Chloe mentioned again, with our, with our Red Frogs crew, a whole lot of people's lives were helped, you know, right today in this moment we're in uh, because of people's generosity. And so there's a lot to be grateful for, a lot to be thankful for. Least of all, and this is probably the biggest thing to be grateful to God for right now, is that Brisbane is now on a two-game winning streak in the NRL. And uh, I just think that God just deserves all the glory for that. And <laughs> anyway, there you go. <laughs> I think it's because Queensland are responsible for the election results. Everything's coming up Queensland right now. And so they're going to win the origin. This is just great. Sunshine Coast Lightning won the netball last night. Who'd have thunk it? I, tell me, I could just keep going for the next half an hour. I've got a whole lot of things to say. But anyways, I digress. So this is the question we're asking. What difference does it make now? And in the same way that the first followers of Jesus were gripped by radical generosity, what about today? What difference does it make now? And so we've been particularly pouring over through the book of Acts. And if you're kind of uh, new to the kind of the Christian world and maybe you don't have a background in reading the Bible and the New Testament, which is kind of your second half of your Bible since, since the life of Jesus, kind of all documents his life and, 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 uh, and what he did and he accomplished. And then after his resurrection, what happened there? Um, a whole lot of the book of Acts, which records how the church kind of got off the ground. There's kind of one of the central figures in there is a gentleman named Paul. And we talk about Paul a lot, Paul a lot. So if you're like, who's this Paul character? I'm waiting for him to get up and preach or something. He's a historical figure. He was a Christian hunter. He hated Jews. Sorry, he hated, he was, he was a Jew. He didn't hate them. He, he murdered Christians until he himself encountered Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and turned his life around. So, um, and to be, and as a side note, if you're someone who's interested in, you know, the validity of the Bible and can we trust the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus, 
um, what historians often do to, uh, to kind of validate whether a historical document is accurate, or even today, you do it yourself. You give judgment to anything, whether a, a report or whether it's on the news or whatever you might read is accurate. You ask the question, what's in it for the person who's reporting it? If there's profit in it, they'll report a certain slant that gives them profit. And, and you know, you don't need to, me to go further into that. You understand that. So when we look at um, the, the New Testament accounts of the resurrection of Jesus, we ask, what was in it for them? Because if this was a fallacy, if this wasn't true, they gave up everything for something that wasn't true. There was no political power in it for the eyewitnesses of Jesus. There were no financial gains. If anything, they lost all their finances. They lost their position. They lost their friends, all because they saw a resurrected Jesus. So it's just another kind of uh, nail in the coffin, as it were, as a validity to why we can trust the New Testament and why we can trust the eyewitness accounts of Jesus. Because quite frankly, those who wrote it and those who wrote what they saw, they weren't writing it to get anything. They were writing it even though they knew it was going to cost them everything. And so the book of Acts records a whole lot of these events that take place. And what we're going to pick up here is this is just before Paul uh, gets arrested and, and ultimately gets sentenced to death by the Emperor Nero in Rome. He wrote a whole lot of his letters that we have in our New Testament from his jail cell in Rome. And this is uh, uh, Paul um, having his final goodbyes to people who were very dear to him. It was the church that was based in Ephesus. And uh, without giving all the background there, they were very, very dear to him. They were like family to him. It was a very tearful goodbye. And this was his one chance to leave one last message with them. And we pick up his final words to his friends in Ephesus. This is in the book of Acts, chapter 20. It says, this is Paul speaking, Paul speaking. He said, and everything I did, meaning all the decades I've been with you, pastoring in you, loving you, leading you, writing to you, and everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. And I want you to remember that term that this is really important for today. We must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, he quotes Jesus, where Jesus said, it is more blessed to give and to receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, again, this was like Jesus' one major ethic that he left, his one command he left with his new covenant, his followers. He says, here's what you gotta do. Love one another as I have loved you. He defined love. He didn't leave love open to interpretation. He said, here's the definition of it. The way I have loved you, that's how I want you to love the world. The way I've loved you in your mess, in your garbage, in your anger, and your brokenness, I want you to love the world the same way. That's my one command. And so everywhere through the New Testament, we see the apostles trying to outwork this one ethic. And so here's Paul again quoting Jesus saying, we've got to remember this one thing and all the things that I've taught you and all the things that I've shown you and the way I've lived my life among you. I want you to remember this. But Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than receive. Now, let's get real for a moment. No one believes that, right? We, there's kind of something intuitive about us. We go, come on, Jesus. The reason you said that is because you know no one thinks that. We all know it's better to receive than it is to give, right? Amen, good preaching, John. Who? hallelujah. So, because it feels great to give, right? It feels great to receive. It's like, ah, oh, this is amazing. How often do we give with a smile? We often give with conditions. This isn't a slight, it's just reality. It's, we give, we, you know, if no one says thank you for what we give, then hey, I oh, know I gave expecting a, something in return. A hug, a kiss, a friendship. It came with conditions. And if you don't thank me, then I'm now going to be angry at you, right? We, we always, it's like, I like giving, but there's something just so good about receiving. There's something so good about when someone gives to me. But Jesus' way of seeing the world, the kingdom of God's way of seeing the world is radically different because it connects with the most real part of you. It gets beneath the surface level of our lives, the kind of parts that we feel, our first innate human responses, and gets to the heart of the matter. And Jesus now that he said, it truly is more blessed. It is better for you to give than receive. And why? Because it's not just better for you. It's better for everyone in your world. When you give, 
Everyone in your world is better off. It's better for your marriage when you're someone who prefers, I'm going to give more into this marriage and I expect back from it. It's better for your kids. It is better for your community. It's better for your neighbors. It's better for your enemies. Jesus understood this new radical ethic would be so much better for everyone if we learned it was more blessed to give than to receive. And so as, as kind of Jesus preached this message and proved he had the authority to preach it by resurrecting from the dead, his followers began to outwork this. And one of the most massive changes that began to happen practically in the world, and we touched on this last week, is that things took on lesser value and people took on greater value. Things took on lesser value. They didn't take on no value. They were still important. Your money, your roof over your head, food, possessions, experiences, holidays. But they just took on lesser value. They took their rightful place. And people took on greater value. Now, again, here we are sitting in our Western, you know, enlightened. We understand. We understand we're enlightened. But Jesus was the one who enlightened us on this principle. This is the whole idea. When Jesus first preached this, this was not the case. People were only as valuable as things. People were commodity. In the Roman Empire, depending on where you were in life, depending on who you were, and depending on what was right or what was wrong about you, you took on a different kind of value. You didn't have an innate value bestowed on you from your heavenly Father. Jesus introduced that ethic to the world. And so the followers trying to outwork this, it radically changed the way. And this is why when we read what Paul said in those last words, he said, I want you to remember the weak. Because in the Roman Empire, the weak were not remembered. The weak were discarded. The weak weren't thought of. If you carried any kind of disability or if, if you'd kind of lost your family, if, if you were a widow, if you were forgotten, like you didn't have a status. There were no government agencies. There was no welfare. There were no hospitals. There were no orphanages. It was followers of Jesus who invented this stuff up because of this one new ethic that shaped the world. People were seen as, as simply, they were the same as things. That's where their value was. And the same way, if a thing's broken, it loses value. That's the same value that people place in humans. If they broke, if they couldn't contribute something anymore, their value decreased. And so this was so radical that Paul would say, we must remember to help the weak. Now again, here we are sitting in Australia at this enlightened Western 21st century world. You're like, Jono, tell me something I don't know. I don't even have to believe in Jesus to do this stuff. Like the world, we get this. Okay, so what I'm gonna do for the next moment, I'm gonna do something a little different. I'm gonna kind of step away simply from reading a Bible passage for a moment. I wanna look at a few characters from history and to highlight the difference between when people take a belief in God and a God that cares to one degree, and then those who don't adhere to a belief in God. And some of you might be in that, in that role and think, well, how, that's not harmless. I'm loving people. I, I'm, I, you know, I, I help the weak. We will see history sets a pretty dangerous precedent when people take some of the suggestions of a world without a God and a God who cares to its nth degree, just the type of value that is then put on or rather taken off from the human story. Because throughout all of history, all of it, at least since the resurrection of Jesus, it has been the conviction of Jesus' followers who were stood up to and pushed back against movements and ideas that would degrade a human being into a thing. Let's look at a few of them for a moment. Okay, one of my favorites, William Wilberforce. Many of you would know this character. Um, he was a British politician, philanthropist. He was a wealthy landowner, um, a very powerful guy, but he was ultimately one of the leaders in the slave abolition movement throughout the British Empire. In fact, he devoted 20 years of the best parts of his life to giving 
his world, he leveraged his resources, he leveraged his power, he leveraged his influence, he leveraged his wealth in order to abolish the slave trade throughout the British Empire. Now we're sitting here going, well, yeah, I'd do the same thing if I was in his position. But you have to understand, again, this was in a time where we, people didn't see all people as equal as you and I see people today. In fact, what he was suggesting in the liberation of all the slaves throughout the empire, it ultimately, everyone knew it was going to bring the British empire to their knees because up to one third of the British empire's wealth or the commonwealth's wealth was on the back of the slave trade. And so to abolish overnight a slave trade literally meant to cripple the English economy. But he was convinced that it doesn't matter if we lose our economy. People are more valuable than things, right? And he totally believed in a culture and the universal, this principle that all people are created equal in the eyes of God and we cannot put a dollar value on human life. And so he pushed and pushed and it took him 20 years, but he got there. He defended the weak. And this all stemmed from his conviction that he was to now love others as he had been loved by God through Christ Jesus. We go on to another one. Another one of my favorites, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you, again, will be familiar with this guy. He was a pastor in Germany uh, in the years leading up to World War II as the Nazi party started to gain traction and influence in Germany. So he became a radically outspoken pastor, a gnarly guy. He wrote a whole lot of books, um, pretty challenging books to read, but for his context, he would bring in a stark rebuke to not only Christians, but to his nation of saying how they would realize that he was this now a, a, a movement where certain groups of people were not now held in the same esteem as others and certain races were exalted above others. He's like, hang on, hang on, hang on. Stop adding certain different levels of values because of how you view people. And so because of his revelation of Jesus Christ, this led him to boldly push against a worldview that was degrading others and, 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 and valuing others compared to those who were, who were weaker and society, and ultimately he's lost his life for it. And perhaps more recent and more well-known is, is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was obviously the, the famed civil rights activist. That not only did he fight for the civil rights of black America in his own time, but he fought in many cases for around the world, and his words today still ring true and powerful. And a few weeks ago, I had the chance of uh, visiting his tomb where he's buried in Atlanta and visiting, I got to sit in the auditorium where he used to preach along with his dad. I got to hear one of his sermons. It was a pretty amazing moment where he, he, uh, they had recordings of his sermons that he preached in that building, got to sit in the building listening to the sermons he preached. It was a remarkable experience. There's something that was unique about all of these, and I could list more and more, and I apologize, I didn't have any women included there. There's no point, like there was, there was no reason I didn't. It's just they're the three I picked, just in case you're wondering, because women have done just as much as men, and indeed way more than blokes in bringing great change to the world in the name of Jesus. And so here I was sitting in this church, listening to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. preach on this, and a theme that kept coming up through all these historical figures is that the fight for human value and the fight to place value upon people, to keep pushing against ideals that would degrade people into something less than human or less than how God valued them, they recognize that the fight for the value of humans has always been a spiritual movement as much as a political campaign. And before we ever stop and think, that what we talk about here and loving people and how we value people and helping people is simply just a, a worldview based on political ideals or philosophical ideas. Everyone who has put their life on the line for this, everyone who has fought for this, everyone who has led from a conviction based out of their faith in Jesus has recognized this ultimately has been something that has been birthed from a spiritual hunger or a spiritual need or a spiritual origin, not simply a political viewpoint. And the reason, particularly what I got to experience about 
um, king, the reason he believed this is because he saw the opposite to be true. That there were indeed movements across the world that didn't have a belief in God or indeed a God who cares as a basis for their worldviews. And those societies and those people groups and organizations that didn't believe in a God, it led them down a radically different view of the world and of the value of human beings. One of the, in uh, recent years, one of the probably loudest proponents of certain voices along this line is a, and I'm definitely going to pronounce his name wrong, a philosopher named Frederick uh, Nietzsche. Nietzsche. It's definitely incorrect. Look, some of you are going to correct me after this, but there you go. He was a German philosopher in the mid-19th century, and he was a scathing critic of the Christian worldview. Um, and much of his writings influenced lots of other writers and lots of other social commentators and political worldviews, which we'll see in a moment. But he scorned Christianity for taking the side of all that is weak. He was abhorred by it. It would stand in the gap for those who are unfit, those who couldn't look after themselves. He saw it as a religion based on pity. And because of that, he said it went against evolution and its principles of fitness and competition. Think on that for a moment. In a world that doesn't come from a heavenly father that values it, loves you, what worldview are you left to build a world off with? And he obviously learned from his contemporary, Charles Darwin, the British naturalist. Many of you would be familiar with his workings and probably a whole lot that he wrote that you'd be like, ah, oh, it's pretty good stuff that he wrote. Or maybe you're completely opposed to wherever you sit. He would often take, again, huge criticism on Christian society, on Western society, on what he termed as civilized society. And that's his word, not mine. And he would often compare and contrast what he would refer to as uh, societies um, that were, uh, well, he would use the term savages and compare savages compared to civilized men. Once again, his term, not mine. Um, this is in the 1850s. And he would often refer to, he'd say, that he, this is a quote of his, where he says, savages eliminate their weakened body. He, they eliminate those who are weak in mind. And that those who survive are always vigorous in health. But unfortunately for us, civilized Christian society, we care, protect, heal, and even defend the weak. We create hospitals for them. We create laws to protect them and institutions to care for them. And to ram home the point, he even wrote a book on it called The Descent of Man. And this is his worldview. This is, what he, this is him quoting. This is Darwin. He said, the weak members of civilized society propagate. Can you believe this? propagate their kind. And he uses an illustration of why he thinks this is a bad idea. He says, no one who has attended to the breeding of domestic animals will doubt that this must be highly injurious to the race of man. Let's let this sit for a moment, right? Because they're educated like you and I. They live in the Christian West like you and I. And we often think ourselves so enlightened, but you take away the worldview and the way of looking at humanity that Jesus introduced, you're left with this. A radical different view of the value that we contend to place on one another. And this is exactly where Jesus came in with often his scathing critique of this worldview, of worldviews like this, because he understood without heaven's perspective, people will end up taking lesser value and things will begin to take greater value. Without eternity's perspective that God has given innate value to human beings, humans will take on lesser value and things will take on greater value. Indeed, if there is no God or at least no God who cares for humans, history has shown that that idea leads down a path where people are dehumanized. In fact, it's often been said that when the idea of God is gone, this is so important to understand, that when the idea of God, is, of God is gone, different societies and civilizations have shown us that they will find something else to transcend everything else. They'll find something else to spiritualize, some other concept in order to appear morally and spiritually superior. The Marxists made the state into this. They made the state absolute, while the Nazis did the same thing to race and to blood. I mean, the Nazis, we talked about before, um, the German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, Nazis carried his sentiments to its logical conclusion where they ended up setting up extermination centers for the mentally handicapped and severely disabled. Again, 
without the ethic that Jesus introduced to the world to love one another as your heavenly Father loves you. This is the world we're left with. Karl Marx argued that if you believe in a life, just get this, if you believe in a life after this one, you won't be concerned about making the world a better place. This is what he argued. This is why the, the critique often was about against Christians and those who believed in God. He said, if you're believing in some, some, some fabled afterlife, you won't give a second thought to this world and making it better. But history has proven the opposite should be argued. That if this world is all there is, and these world's possessions and things and experiences and hope and joy is all you'll ever know, why would you give any of it up for the betterment of someone else? History has shown that you would hoard power for yourself, that we will hoard possessions for ourselves. If it not were for the understanding that there is an eternal fruit and an eternal reward and an eternal promise given to us through Christ Jesus, history has proven, put aside all the virtue signaling, history has proven that we end up becoming the most selfish of species that this planet would ever know. And it's right on this tone that Jesus brings his critique and ultimately Jesus brings his warnings. <laughs> Majority of Jesus' warnings that he gave were around the idea of how the value we place on between people or between things. And Luke, who recorded the book of Acts that we read earlier, he also wrote his own gospel account from different eyewitness accounts of what Jesus taught. I want to look at one encounter where Jesus had here where he taught about this very thing and he brought a warning between what is temporary and what is eternal or how we value people versus how we value things. This is what Jesus said. He said, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, that which is temporal, things, stuff. Who will trust you with, with true riches? No one can serve two masters. And I want you to take note of this. This, this term here is, is fascinating to use masters. Like as if you're gonna serve someone in life, your life will bow the knee to someone or to something. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one or love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God cash. Now you're wondering, wow, Johnny, that took a really random turn. Now you're all of a sudden talking about money. I didn't take that turn. Jesus did. Because if we were talking about the temporal and the eternal, I figured Jesus might say something like this. You don't, you cannot serve God and the devil. That seems to be like the polar opposites, right? Or you cannot serve good and evil, or you cannot serve light and dark, or you cannot serve God and self. But he didn't say that. This is where Jesus drew the line. He said, you cannot serve God and money, stuff, the things that we value so quickly above that of people. And he gives a warning about what does your life value most. Now, on a side note, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're here this morning, you do not have to buy into this. You're under no ob obligation to pay attention to what Jesus taught. I would advise you to, because I think it's going to be really helpful to you, but you're not obliged. If you are a follower of Jesus, heed this warning. He says you can't serve God and money. So he asks the question, who are you serving? Because it's easy to say, well, I go to church and attend this and I do that. Jesus doesn't draw the line out. He draws the line here. You're either serving God or you're serving money. He's talking about our budget. He's talking about things we can count. I hate that because he, he gets rid of the loopholes for us. He said, you can't serve good and evil. You're like, well, I don't serve evil. But you are definitely a steward of money. And so Jesus gives a warning. He goes, you're serving God or money. And he prefaces it by saying this, if you're not being trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, the things that the world considers wealthy, who will trust you with true riches? True riches. So when he talks about true riches, what exactly Jesus is referring here? Because if worldly wealth isn't true riches, I want in on what is truly rich. And so before this, literally the, the very verse, verses before Jesus brings this principle, he 
given an illustration. He gives three illustrations, and these are fascinating. And to, to set the scene up, it's a powerful scene. Whole lot of people sitting around Jesus, and there was tension in the room because um, there were all the religious people were there, those who considered themselves religious and righteous and right with God and, and were the good people, that would call themselves the good people. And there was kind of the, the hierarchy and the leaders of the day. But Jesus also welcomed the outcasts, the weak, those who society had turned their back on. And they referred to them as sinners. It was kind of a, an all-encompassing term. So Jesus had them all there. And so those who were of position and those who were of strength were offended that Jesus would also welcome in the weak in the one room. They could understand if Jesus was rebuking the weak, but he wasn't. He wasn't rebuking them. He was welcoming them. And so Jesus, to, to give an illustration of what heaven values, the value that the heavenly Father has on people, what Jesus referred to as true riches, he tells three stories or three parables. The first one was the parable of a lost sheep, about a sheep that got lost. The second one was a parable of a lost coin, a woman who lost her coin. And the third one was about a son who got lost and ultimately returned to his father. And this is amazing. The parable of the, Jesus was kind of leading up in tension until he got to this story here about a son who turned his back on his father, spent all of his inheritance, spent all of his wealth. And when he finally came to his senses, when he realized that stuff never brought him joy, when things run out, when things eventually become not enough, that really the greatest joy he had was to find in life was through relationship with his father. So he turned back home. And it's obviously a picture of people finding a relationship with their heavenly father. But in each of these stories, there was a concurrent theme that comes through where heaven celebrated over one thing that was lost and returned, of one person that was a sinner and turned to Jesus, or rather than the 99 who don't need forgiveness, or one son that turned their back on their father and returned. So it wasn't the amount that was celebrated, it was the who. And this is such an important principle because in a world like us, we love to count things, right? We love to count things. And how much things you have means the things you have are worth more. But heaven simply doesn't count things, right? Heaven doesn't count things. In heaven, every one counts. And so this is this radical new way of looking at the world that Jesus was instituting. He could, to be truly rich doesn't mean you have heaps of stuff. To be truly rich means you value what your heavenly Father values. So when He says you cannot serve God and money, He's saying, here's the thing. If to be truly rich for you is a money thing, you're serving money. If to be truly rich is a people thing, you're serving God. People were the true riches that Jesus was trying to get to, right? It was people who are, were the true riches in Jesus' day, and it's people who are the true riches today. The world counts numbers, but Jesus' followers are to celebrate people. People are the true riches. This is why our mission as a church is entirely around people. We've been here for any amount of time. We've written it. We see it everywhere. Our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we're leading up to our Vision Sunday in a few weeks' time, we're going to be asking us to give over and above our regular weekly giving. Those of you who are regular, we call that tithing, where you just kind of budget it into your finance every week, a percentage of your income to give first to God and through the mission of this local church. We're going to ask one another to give over and above that because we want to go beyond simply the maintenance of a building or the running costs of just doing church. We want to be positioned for greater influence in our world through the love of Jesus Christ. So when we do everything we do as a church, there's a massive question we're always asking. When it comes to our operations, when it comes to our events, our facilitation, it's always around this question. Don't miss it. How can we better serve people? When it comes to all of our ministries that we operate and run and facilitate, we ask the question, how can we serve people 
through this. This is never to give someone else a platform or simply an opportunity to give people's gifting another shot. We're always asking the question, how can we leverage our giftings? How can we leverage what we've got to be a blessing to people? In all of our environments, we ask the question, how can we serve humans? (laughs) In all of our facilities, when we design things and we plan things and we want to build things and build things better and fix things, uh, before long, we are literally going to have to replace the entire roof of the church. That's a good one because we just don't want it raining on people, right? So, but with all our facilities, we're often asking the questions, how can this better serve people? With the way we operate our staff when we do our employment here, we ask the question, how can these roles better serve people? Are you seeing a theme here? <laughs> In all of our events, we ask the question, is this leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ? And if you're a member of Suncoast Church, I'm inviting you. We're inviting you to partner with this mission, to be part of this, not just in song and dance and clapping and attendance, but I want us to partner together with worldly wealth to let our Heavenly Father know, man, you can trust us with true riches because we are leveraging the wealth you've put in our hands to be about something that is bigger than ourselves. And in the same way, Heavenly Father, that those who saw Jesus resurrected were gripped so much by it that it led to this idea of radical generosity. Our lives too are gripped with the same conviction, radical generosity. I want to I challenge you, if you are a follower of Jesus here and your life isn't gripped by that, I want to challenge you again to allow your life to be loved by God. Because the Christian ethic of giving isn't this idea that we give to get. <laughs> Christian ethic is we give because we've got. You can write that down and insta quote it picture of me joking don't do that i don't do that definitely don't do that (laughs) right so it's not this we give to earn or we give to get it's not like that it's we have been this is the ethic right from the beginning because we have been loved because we've been accepted because our heavenly father has been so generous to us i can't help but be radically generous a few weeks ago well last week we had a no go back go back go back i'm before yeah a few weeks ago we had an election campaign some of you might have heard of it and we voted generally speaking when we vote we usually vote based off this question. We ask the question, what's in it for me? Don't we? We don't admit it, but that's the truth. We look at, you know, what politician's going to give me what I want. And that's fine. Like that's, they're, they're called public servants, right? They serve the public. I heard our, our local politician uh, made a cool call. He goes, look at my, I endeavored to be the Sunshine Coast man in Canberra, not Canberra's man on the Sunshine Coast. We're like, oh, yeah, good. Because I want to make sure you're fighting for my interests. And so they should. That's why we pay you and all those things. That's why I voted you in. But if you're a Christian here, we deal in a different question with our life. It's this, it's what's in it for me versus much bigger question. And the big, not memorable as easy as the first line, but stay with me. We ask this question. How can I leverage what God has given me to steward so I can love people with the same love that I have been loved with? That's a much bigger question, just simply words-wise, than what's in it for me. A lot harder to remember. But stay with me. You've got to get, because this is what this whole, this is what I want to leave you with today. Is the question we ask because of how we've been loved and how we handle the wealth that God has given and how we are to outwork this Christian ethic is asking this question, how can I leverage what God has given me to steward? Finances, the margin, the resource in my hands. How can I leverage what God has given me to steward so I can love people with the same love that I have been loved with? And so to finish today, I want to finish with something very, ultimately very practical. So I'm getting, this is going to seem like the most unspiritual ending to a message ever. But this is so important that we walk away with what this looks like in practice. And we talk about this as often as we remember. In our life, when it comes to how we leverage what we've got and how we use what we've got and how we, with the time and the resource and the money we've got, we often live with a pattern like this, which is live first, as in everything you've got, spend it on your bills, your holidays, your clothes, your food, life, live. And you use all the money you've got to live. 
And then if by some random chance you get to save after you paid off all your debts, then you get to save a little cream on the top there. And every now and again, when you attended the wrong meeting or the wrong church service, someone gave a really good money talk and they twist your arm and they guilt you into giving. Or maybe you're the kind of person that can't ignore the person who's asking you to give to the RSPCA or the Surf Lifesaving Club, and you get guilted into giving all the time. So every now and again, after you spend everything on living, and by some miracle you might have saved something, we might have our arm twisted, or we might get manipulated some way into giving. But what Jesus is referring to, this idea of generosity, of serving God, not money, reverses this order. And it gives this suggestion that you give first, And this kind of giving is what we refer to as generosity because you budget it. You budget a percentage of what you have to steward your money right at the top. Before you spend it, you give it. And what this does first, when you give first, this is amazing. It is the key to financial liberation. Really, Jono? Yes. It is liberation from a life where things are king. When you give first, when you budget into your finance to give First, not to be emotionally an emotional giver or give every, but you budget a proportion, a percentage of your income. You liberate your life from where you're living as if things are king. And it doesn't matter how much things are demanding your attention, how much things and stuff is demanding your income. You've already determined that things aren't king, that your life values the true riches. Your life values what God values. And so we budget right there at the top, giving. And then because we're wise, because we're wise and because we care about our future, we save. And then you're allowed then to live a life within the parameters of what is left, okay? The large proportion of what is left. Therefore, you're not wasting, all right? You don't look and go, I don't have anything left to give or anything left to save because I spent it all. You've already given and you've already saved and you'll be surprised at how easily you can live in the margin of the majority to live off, right? That's very unspiritual, but probably the most spiritual thing you could ever do with your day-to-day life. True riches, true riches. So yeah, I'm unapologetically saying, and I'm asking you, I'm inviting you, if you're a follower, again, if you're not a follower of Jesus here, this is, don't take this as a law or a religious thing to put around your neck. I do invite you to participate and try God out at it. In fact, we see from the Old Testament, it's the one thing God said, test me on it. Prioritize this first, just wait and see. That's not my words, tis true riches. Maybe you and I, when we read through the pages of history, the incredible stories and impact and influence that Jesus' followers have made in their generation and made on the world, maybe it won't just bring us to shed a tear get goosebumps to go, wow, that's inspiring. Maybe our turn to look at what we've got now and to look at how can we make a difference with what we've got in our hands, our generation. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we get the chance to partner with you and your mission. Our lives have been forever bettered and improved and healed and redeemed because of your generosity. You didn't even spare your own son. So today I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would again grip us as a church community with the same spirit that gripped the first followers. We would be indeed radically generous. We wouldn't live our life by the temperament of our culture or the temperament of worldly wealth, but rather our heart to be gripped by what you see is truly rich. We want to serve God. Well, for those here this morning, maybe you've never even known that they're loved by their Heavenly Father. I pray today, Holy Spirit, that their hearts would know it. They are valuable, that they are seen, that they are loved, that they are cherished. God, we give you all the glory today. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you were encouraged by what you heard and inspired to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. Hope you can join us again on the next podcast or here at Suncoast Church.